Good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 9. Acts, chapter 9. We are continuing on in our summer road trip series. And we are heading up a new road today. We're heading up the Damascus Road. Now, Damascus is a very interesting place. It's a beautiful place, ancient city. It's actually the oldest capital in the world. And it is one of the oldest continually inhabited cities in the world. We first learn about Damascus in the Bible with Abraham. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 14. But it's not this city that is so important to us. What's really important is the road that leads to Damascus from Jerusalem. Because it's there that we learn of the conversion of Saul. It is so important that Luke mentions it three different times in this book, in Acts. The first time is the telling of this, what's happening. And then, then Saul, who later becomes Paul, retells it a couple other different times. But Luke puts it in here three times. So there must be something here that is of great importance. And so our story begins here in chapter 9, in verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now last week we talked about Philip. Philip had left during the great scattering of Jerusalem, persecution that had happened after the martyrdom of Stephen. Saul was there. Saul was in full approval of what was going on. And now here we see something new is happening. Saul is, is he's outside of Jerusalem. He is hunting Christians down. Do you see that? He's hunting them down. But God has a different role for, for this Saul. And so we continue reading, beginning in verse 3. Now as they went on their way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to, Saul, saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank." The glory of the Lord was so overwhelming, it knocked Saul to the ground. He is blind. Jesus asked him this really interesting question. Why are you persecuting me? Oh, wait a second, I thought Jesus had resurrected and ascended into the heavens. You see, when, when you persecute his church, you're persecuting him. If anyone has ever said anything to you or anyone, whether it's people you work with or someone on social media and, and they mock you for, for being a follower of Jesus, they're not just doing it against you, they're doing it against Jesus. 
This last weekend, some of you may have seen this video that went around viral. It was in Los Angeles. Street preachers, they were attacked and beaten up by a group of Antifa um, um, in, there in Los Angeles. Jesus says, as what happened to them, he says they're doing it to him. Yeah, if you watch the video, if you saw it at all, it just makes you angry. And it's like, you know, I wish Jesus would come in all of his glory and knock these, these self-righteous, violent, merciless Antifa folks, just bring them to the ground. But what if, what if Jesus had an intention for one of these guys to be one of his disciples? I'll be honest, when I'm watching, I want a little bit of divine retribution. I kind of like the idea of being thrown to the ground. How do you think those Christians felt <laughs> about this guy, Saul? Don't you think they were absolutely sick and tired of this guy? He is harassing them. He is hunting them down. He is, he is imprisoning them. In some cases, they are being murdered. Try to put yourself into the tension of what Jesus is doing here on the Damascus Road. Because what Jesus is doing to Saul is he is changing his perspective of God, of his understanding of the Scriptures, even of his understanding of his own identity and values. Meanwhile, while he's being struck down, Jesus goes and makes another visit. And he begins in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. So one of the people that he's coming to arrest, this is one of the ones that Jesus comes to. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. Ah, we're going on another road here. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Vision or not, I'm not real sure what I'd have thought about this. Imagine, if you will, um, Jesus is asking you to go and see someone who is a, a known terrorist. Someone who has is, who is declared jihad, holy war, upon Christians. And he's now sending them there. And, and, and he, he responds probably the way we would have responded. He keeps going. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Okay, I get the concern. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Can you imagine? I mean, do you think at any point he's just like, seriously? One of these kind of people? They're going, you want to choose him? But he says, a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and to the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake 
of my name. Ah, finally, got to hear something I wanted to hear. So Ananias departed, and he entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell off from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The Damascus Road, he's getting off the Damascus Road, which I believe symbolically shows his old way of life. And he's put him on the straight street. Isn't that interesting? What a great name for this. this was it a coincidence? I don't know. But this was a real road. It was a main Roman road back in the day. This is the earliest I could find of this particular road is 1862. This is what Straight Street looks like today. I don't think it's called Straight Street. Actually, you can't say that real fast too many times. But anyway, uh, but it was a real place. Somewhere, somewhere in here, Saul was going to be met. Saul was transformed. And Ananias overcame his fear and his reluctance, and he went and told this guy that most of us would have been very intimidated to go and talk to. And he, and he doesn't do what I might would have wanted to do. We don't, at least we don't have any record of him going in and rebuking him and saying, you know, some of those people you arrested, some of those people who ended up being martyred, those were friends of mine. He doesn't do that. In fact, he says, brother. He calls him brother. He's in absolute obedience to Jesus. And sometimes that's the hardest thing to do with people that we just don't like. People who just haven't treated us right. But there's more for us here, and there's more for you. And some of you already have had some of this type of experience. Maybe not a light has come down on you on a road somewhere. But one thing that you have learned is that no one is beyond God's reach. Saul's conversion is proof that God can transform anyone and use him for his good. Even the most hard-hearted of people. And if you look through history, it's really interesting the kind of people that Jesus chose. Who, who God the Father chose, even, even in times past. Who was it that Jesus chose to be his disciples, his apostles? Well, there was this guy, he was a zealot. Uh, think in terms of Antifa. Here is this guy. He is the scum of the earth, according to society. He was a tax collector. You got these, these guys who were these hardcore fishermen. They're certainly not the kind of people that you would normally look to in times like this. Jesus chose a woman, a, an immoral woman in Samaria at a well. To go and tell the town that the Messiah has come. He chose this, this man who had lived in tombs. He was demon possessed. Jesus heals him and he says, listen, I want you to go and testify to your family. You tell them about what you've seen here. It's amazing who God has always chosen. Saul has been one of the cruelest enemies of Jesus. And he's going to become the best friend of our Lord. God's forgiveness, it's powerful and it is final. And some of you, your lives were a mess before you ever came to Christ. And it's amazing how God has continued to use you. In fact, there's one in particular. You ought to, you ought to go and hear the story. I only bring it up because 
I know he shared this story with us before. It's Mike McGee. He's one of our two elders. You ought to hear his conversion story. And now to see how God's using him? What is it in your life that you think God can't, can't change, can't transform you, that he can't use you? You may be here this morning, you know you're a sinner. It's gnawing at you. You hate what you have done with your life. And I think you hate it even more that you love it. But the good news is that Jesus saves even the most vile of people. Even those who went out and persecuted Christians. Christ's own people and he says, I can make something from them. He wants to transform your life. Now, those of you who are old enough, and I think we've got enough gray-haired people and no-haired people, you may remember Charles Colson. He was with the Nixon administration. He was known as the evil genius of the Nixon presidency and masterminded ways to sabotage Nixon's opponents. He also spent seven years in a, a federal prison after his, his dealings with uh, Watergate, his involvement in Watergate. And it was while he was in there that he became a Christian. And when he gets out, he founds these, these nonprofit organizations, including a, a jail, a prison fellowship ministries that was designed to bring Bible studies to prisoners and to their families. His whole life was about telling people about Jesus. Some of you may have seen this guy before, Michael Franzese. He was born into a New York mob. He eventually became the head of the Colombo family, crime family. He rose up in the ranks by money-making schemes, extortion, money laundering, counterfeiting, intimidation. He's most famous for his gasoline bootlegging. And after his second time in prison in 1993, he says that he found Jesus. And at that point, he left the Colombo family, which was a cardinal sin in the mafia. He wrote a book in order to help children, uh, young people, not get involved into a life of crime. He spoke at churches and other places trying to, to help people and see that this new life that he has found in Jesus. Or what about this guy? Johnny Lee Clary, he was raised in a racist home. At the age of 14, he got involved in a gang. He eventually joined the Ku Klux Klan. He too rose up in the ranks and became an imperial wizard for the white knights of the KKK. He incited race hate, he beat up people, he burned crosses in people's yards. He even burned down a black church. But later in life, he gave his life to Jesus. He ended up becoming a preacher. He was the first white elder in a predominantly African-American church, and he spent the rest of his life trying to make amends to the very people that he had terrorized. And he became very close to this man, Wade Watts, who is his best friend and mentor. 
I don't know what you think in your life is so evil that God can't save you. I don't know what you think that, that is in your life that is so awful and so vile that God can't use you. And some of you, you may be here this morning and you're seeking Jesus. And you've kind of been putting it off a little bit. And some of the reasons you've put it off is because you're not real sure that Jesus can save you. And some of you, you've been in church your whole life. Some of you, you've been in church for years. And maybe you've done certain things. Maybe you've even been baptized, but you've never given it over to Christ. You never have believed that he could really forgive you for all that you have done. Saul says, yes, he can. And yes, he will. When Saul later on retells this story of his conversion, he talks about um, more of what Ananias had said to him. And at one point he says, and now why do you wait? That's the question. What are you waiting for? He says, arise. Be baptized. Call on his name. Baptism and calling on the name of the Lord. That, folks, this is the initiation into the community of faith. It's into the place where we find forgiveness, where our sins are washed away, where a brand new chapter in our life begins. There is not anything that you have done that God cannot forgive you. And there's not anything that you have been that God cannot transform you to be an absolute giant for him. But here's another thing. Sometimes we lose sight in order to gain vision. Saul, he went completely blind, but he needed to be blinded in order to truly see. And when those scales came off, it metaphorically was showing that this man is finally able to see the truth of Christ. I've mentioned the great Italian painter Caravaggio before. Love some of his stuff. He actually did two of these in the depiction of, of Paul's um, conversion. The other one was not well received because at that time you were not supposed to show the back end of a horse. Uh, it was not considered modest. But I love this particular one. This is the other one he did. And here you have Saul down here. You can see just what's going on and, and how we've read this story and everything else. But I love Car Caravaggio's rendition of this because up in the right-hand corner... You see this man, and he's, he's with Saul, and he's reaching down to try to help him. But there's an angel that's holding him back. It's, it's as if he's saying, no, leave him alone. Let, let, let Christ have his full work in this man. Let him be down in his blindness. Let him be down there in his helplessness. Now, that's not the way Acts reads. All three accounts, you're not going to read about an angel holding someone back. But I, that's one of the beauty of the artistic work because it puts us into the intensity of what's happening. And that's what he's doing here. Saul needed to be knocked off his high horse, if you will. Saul was a man who, 
who was very important. He was educated. He was a high-ranking Pharisee. His position earned him of great respect and, and influence. But later he writes in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9, he says, all the things that I lost, he says, it was nothing but gain for what, what I have now in learning and knowing of Jesus Christ, my Lord. He stopped trying to impress others by his obedience to the law, and he just became faithful to Jesus. Perhaps you've been knocked off your high horse before. I would probably dare say if we went around the room, there'd be a few of you that say, you know what, my story, I could tell you my story. And I could tell you exactly where, where Jesus' light shined on me and I was knocked down. And some of you, you may be waiting on that, that moment. And it may very well come. And it's in those moments of your blindness that, that you're just groping along and you're not real sure what to do in this helpless condition that you're in. And it's in those times that you learn to walk by faith and not by sight. It's in these seasons of darkness that we are compelled to go deeper into our relationship with Jesus Christ. Saul's mission was to help the blind Spiritually speaking. In fact, later on when he talks to King Agrippa, he gives a little bit more detail. He says, uh, Ananias tells him, he says, I'm sending you to open their eyes, talking about the Gentiles, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The world, like many of us before are blinded by Satan. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But his glory does shine. And he goes on and he says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He quotes actually from Genesis 1-3, the one who brings light out of the darkness. Because the illuminating work of God is a new creation that is going on. In Colossians, he goes on and he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Now, many of us have heard the story about the song Amazing Grace and John Newton, who was the one who wrote this particular song. If you know his story, you know he was raised in a religious home. You also know that he went off and, and, and got in to uh, um, uh, become a sailor. It was there he denounced his faith after being influenced by another shipmate. Later on, he deserted the Navy and he was kind of traded over to uh, this, this ship for slave trading and he got into slave trading at that particular point. He became known as the most profane man on that ship. 
If you know anything about sailors from the past and the reputations that they had, you had to be pretty bad to get the reputation of being the most profane. But it was in a life-threatening storm. It looked like all was lost. It looked like there was no way they would escape. That he cries out for mercy from the Lord. And he and the ship and those on the ship were saved. And it began what eventually became his own conversion and how he began to transform his life. He wrote the song, of course, we all know the first verse, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. God wants to open your eyes in a new way. He wants to give you a mission and a purpose in his kingdom. In Ephesians 2, where we learn that we're saved by grace, we're not saved by our works. He goes on and he says, did you know that God already has a plan for your life in his kingdom even before you came to him? Why do you wait? Why do you wait? He's got something glorious for you. And, and if you're here and, and you're just like, you know what? I have. I've been waiting. I've been putting this off. I've been using excuses. And, and I think I can do this all on my own. Let me tell you something. He's calling you today. This may be your Damascus Road moment. And he's trying to put you on straight street. I'm going to be available after this is all said and done. I'm going to be across the way there. You can go through that door and go all the way across and to our Founders Hall. And if you want to talk about Jesus, we're going to talk about Jesus. And if we got more people than, than I can handle at that moment, then I'm going to call our elders. If you want to sit down and you want to talk to a Mike McGee about how he changed his life, because you're not real sure about your own life and where you are in your life. Listen, he's the guy to talk to and he'll tell you how much greater his whole life has been since that time. There are others in this place that I'd love for you to sit and talk with and, and let them tell you about what Jesus has done in their own life. And maybe, maybe you're just one of those people that you've been here your whole life, but you know what? You've never given it all up to Jesus. You continue to fight the idea that somehow God can't forgive you and you need, you need to talk. You need to sit down and we need to just seriously look at this and pray about it and let, let God's spirit really open your eyes. And then, you know, whoever it is that may be ready and you want to be baptized we can do that. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can begin this new mission, this new life in Jesus. But it's to totally up to you. It's totally up to you what you want to do. But I can tell you this, he pursues you every day.
Let's pray. Father, we come to you this day and we thank you for all the love and the mercy that you have shown towards us. Father, we just thank you that in these times when we haven't deserved your grace and your mercy that you've given it to us anyway. Father, we thank you how you've changed our lives, so many lives of people in this auditorium, my own and, and, and others. Father, just how you've made our lives better, our marriages better, our work better. You give us a new perspective in, in ways that we never had before. And Father, I just pray for those who are seeking you this day, those who are hurting, those who have pain, those who feel like that you just can't love them. Father, just open up their hearts. Prick their hearts this day. Let this be a day of a new beginning, a new creation. And Father, we just thank you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.